God, I pray that you would use your word to shape us as your people. Help us to know you better, to know your heart uh, for your people, and help us to learn what it means to live in obedience to your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name, asking for the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Have you ever tried to correct God? You've got a pretty good idea of how things should be going, and they don't seem to be going that way, and so you feel like maybe God needs a little bit of advice from you on how to uh, run the show. Uh, I had a friend who was really convinced that he had found the right girl for him, and he was over at our house for lunch, and he started talking about this girl. And simply put, she was wonderful. He started to describe her to us, and he said, you know what, you can really tell that she loves God. And by the way, a little side note here, if you're in in a Christian subculture and you're a young man and you want to say that a girl is beautiful, but you don't want to seem shallow, what you say is that you can tell that she really loves God. That's kind of the the Christian way of putting that, so you seem like you have a little bit more depth to you. So this guy says that, yes, she, you can tell she really loves Jesus, and, and she has a heart for serving the church. She's, she's, okay, she is beautiful, she's smart, she's, she's perfect for me. And then because he was so infatuated with her, he started to see all these different coincidences lining up. He said, can you believe she has the same first name as my second cousin once removed? I mean, what are the odds that, can you believe that clearly we belong together? We have the same favorite praise song. Can you believe that? Clearly, we deserve one another. And as he started talking more and more about this girl, it became clear that there was only one problem. The girl wasn't interested in him. She didn't reciprocate these feelings. And, and she ended up actually pretty soon after this dating a different guy. And so, of course, this guy is, is just devastated. He's really frustrated. And he, he thinks God needs to kind of get with the program. God, God, that's not how this works. The way it works is you put this girl in my life. I fall in love with her. She falls in love with me. We get married and we live happily ever after. God, you're making a mistake here. Let me just kind of correct you, give you some advice, and let's get back on the right track here. Well, no such luck for this guy. The girl ended up marrying the other guy, and they've been married for some 10 years or so. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in one of these situations where you see the right thing? God, this is what should happen right here, and you're you're tempted to kind of correct him or give him some advice? Maybe you wouldn't be quite so uh, bold when you actually address God, but in your heart and in your mind, you feel like God needs a bit of correction. He's just not doing the right thing, and you could really set him on the right course if he would just listen to you for just a little bit. It sounds pretty bad when we put it that way, but it happens. And really, we're not the first ones to do this. The Bible shows a bunch of different stories where people are trying to correct God and get him back on the right track. And that's one of the stories that we have in front of us this morning. The story is found in Luke chapter 15. It's a story about Jesus. And Jesus is hanging out with the wrong kind of people. He is doing the wrong thing. And people seem to feel like they need to correct Jesus on this. And so we're going to see here that those who would correct Jesus are going to get a crucial lesson about the heart of God and his activity. We're going to learn two things as we look at this text this morning. First, we're going to see why Jesus spends so much time with bad people, and then we're going to see what the church needs to do to be able to reflect the heart of God. So let's look at this first part. Why is Jesus spending so much time with bad people? This is found in Luke chapter 15. If you haven't already turned there, this would be a good time to do that. Uh, You could borrow a pew Bible if you want. It's found on page 1035 of the pew Bibles. So why does Jesus spend so much time with bad people? 
Look at the first two verses. Here's the setup. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, so we've got three character sets here, right? You've got the bad people, and you've got the good people, and then you've got Jesus. And the text identifies the bad people as tax collectors and sinners. And the original audience hearing this for the first time would not have, been, have needed to be told anything else. They would have got the picture. As Pastor Travis shared last week, tax collectors were widely despised in this culture, not only because they were siding with the Roman Empire over their fellow Jews and collecting taxes for Rome, but also because everyone knew that they were collecting more money than they needed to. So not only were they traitors siding with Rome, but they were also thieves taking more money than they had to. So that's one side of this group. And then there's the sinners. And sinners were, well, they're just the obvious sinners, the people who were obviously living in disobedience to God. They were clearly not following God's law. You could look at, take one look at them and realize that they weren't listening to God and obeying him. Those are the bad people. And then there's the good people. The text identifies them as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And these would have been the the good conservative teachers and pastors of the day. These were the ones that you could count on to take a hard line on the moral issues of the day and, and issues of biblical ethics. They were deeply concerned about keeping God's law, and they taught others to keep God's law. These were the good people. And then you've got Jesus. And it's hard to know what to make out of Jesus, because here he is teaching about God. He's teaching about God's love for his people. He's teaching about what heaven is like, what the kingdom of God is like, and all the bad people are flocking to Jesus. They want to hear more about what he has to say. Well, this draws some suspicion from the good people, because we say that, that birds of a feather flock together. And if that's true, well, then look at the people that Jesus is hanging out with. These are not really respected people. These are people with a a bad reputation, and he's spending time with them. If that's true, then maybe Jesus himself is questionable. What Jesus needs to do here is to distance himself from the bad people to show that he is really one of the good people. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, he's actually acting like their friend. And that's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that's what the good people accuse him of in verse 2. They say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. In the culture of that day, what Jesus was doing was symbolically accepting them. He was acting as their friend. And remember, these are the bad people, the clearly bad people. This is a scandalous kind of thing that Jesus is doing. And so the good people show that they need to correct Jesus because he's doing the wrong thing there. They're grumbling against him. They're they're saying that he needs to be corrected. So Jesus responds by telling two stories called parables. Here's the first one, beginning in verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Now, some of you hear this story and you're thinking, that man has such great compassion. He cares so much about his sheep that he doesn't want even one of them lost. 
But some of you are more keen business people, and you're looking at this story and thinking, why on earth would you leave 99 perfectly good sheep to go after a single sheep that has gone away? If you, if you have a business and you have a 99% retention rate, that's pretty good. You're pretty happy with it. Why would you risk losing the 99 to go after the one? Why would you care that much? You've got to cut your losses and move on. Clearly, we're not first century shepherds. The way Jesus words this story, he's assuming that anyone listening would do exactly the same thing that that shepherd would do. Any first century shepherd would leave the 99 sheep. And by the way, if you're worried about the 99 sheep and what's happening to them, don't worry about them. Presumably, there was some kind of helper there to watch over the 99. Any shepherd would have left the 99 sheep to go looking for that one single lost sheep. And he would keep looking for them until he found them. And what does he do when he finds this sheep? He throws a party. He lugs it up onto his shoulders. And remember, this could be a 40, 50, 60 pound sheep. And he he hikes it back to his house. And then he calls all of his friends and neighbors together because this is really good news. He found that one lost sheep that had gotten away. Rejoice with me. Let's throw a party. This is too good to keep to himself. So what's the point? Verse 7. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So we start to get a picture of why Jesus is spending so much time with these bad people. One more story. Verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. Again, it's a a story reiterating the same thing. And for those who are interested in historical details, the the coin here, the the silver coin, is is the the Greek drachma. It would have been worth about a day's wages. And from the way Jesus tells it, it looks like probably this was all this woman owned. These ten coins was about the equivalent of her life savings. And so for the sake of round numbers, we could picture this woman having $1,000 to her name, and she just lost a $100 bill. So what's she going to do? Well, she's going to throw all of her furniture out, upend the whole house to find that coin. This isn't like when you send your kids up to find something in their room, and they're back a minute later saying, I looked everywhere, and I can't find it. And you go up there and see that it's right on top of their bed in plain sight, and you find it in two seconds. This isn't like that. The the woman is is moving everything around in her house, getting a flashlight, looking in every single corner until she finally finds that coin. And what does she do when she finds it? She throws a party. She gathers all of her friends and neighbors. Come rejoice with me. I, I was at the edge of disaster, but I found the coin. Disaster is averted. Rejoice with me because I finally found it. So what's the point? Verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now that is an awesome statement if you get what's being said there. See, Jesus is telling the good people, the good church people, why he's spending so much time with the bad people. The reason is that each and every single one matters to God. See, the good people are content to separate themselves from the bad people and ignore those bad people and just kind of let them do their own thing. But that's not God's attitude toward those who are apart from him. 
God cares deeply about those supposedly bad people. They are His children. He created them in His own image, and He loves them. He cares for them so much that when one of them turns away from running from God and comes back to Him, all of heaven erupts in praise and joy over that one single sinner who has turned to Jesus. Jesus is teaching us God's heart and God's action toward those who are lost outside of him. The stories that Jesus is telling show us how much effort we put into things that in the grand scheme of things are really not that important, right? One single sheep or or one single coin. Yes, those things matter to us. They have some value. And and yes, we chase after those things. And you know what? We have people in our lives who, who chase after things that are much less important than that. You've seen this. When I go home for lunch, almost every single day, I will see my neighbor literally on his hands and knees in his lawn, picking out weeds, making sure he gets every single last one of them, because that's how much he cares about his lawn. I imagine that he probably doesn't like it when our kids pick dandelions and go and blow them toward his yard, but it gives him something to do, right? That's why he's in his yard all the time. My, my parents had a friend uh, in their early marriage who would wash and wax his car every single Saturday. Every week without fail, he was out there cleaning that car because he couldn't stand the thought of a single speck of dust getting on the finish of his car. It had to be perfect. We worry and concern ourselves over big things and little things. And some of the things that we put so much attention on are really not that important. But think about what that must mean about God then. If any shepherd in the first century would have gone looking for one single lost sheep out of a hundred, if a woman would search diligently for that one lost coin out of ten, if my neighbor's getting on his hands and knees to pick out weeds in his, in his lawn, or that guy's going to wash his car every weekend, how much more does God care about those who are his own creatures that he made? How much more will God go after those who right now are apart from him who are living outside of his son Jesus? See, this is teaching us about the heart of God. He's bringing people back to himself. So now we're in a position to answer our question, why does Jesus spend so much time with those bad people over there? It's because each and every single one of them matters to God. He loves them. He he created them. See, we learn something incredibly important about God's heart and God's action toward those who are outside of him through this. Each one matters to God. And that means that we as a church need to take a hard look at where we are to see what is it going to look like then for us to reflect God's heart for those who are lost apart from him right now. See, Jesus in these stories is, is dropping a bomb on the nice, neat religious world of his day. People thought they knew the right categories. There's good people and there's bad people and the bad people, the good people make sure they stay away from the bad people so they don't get you know, drawn down or contaminated or whatever. That's the nice little neat divide. There's good people, there's bad people and the good people worship God and the bad people, well, they're outside of him. But Jesus is dropping a bomb on this whole thing and he's spending a whole bunch of time with those people they consider bad. And people don't, the religious people don't like what's happening here. There are two crucial shifts that have to happen. The first shift is from separatism to mission. See, the bad people are coming to Jesus, and what do the good people do? They're complaining about it. They're saying he's doing the wrong thing here. He shouldn't do that. He's giving the wrong impression, making it look like they can just come back to God. That's not okay. We're making it look like sin's not very serious. 
Now, segregation is one of the most natural human responses to those that we consider different from us. As a country, we call ourselves a melting pot, and to a degree, that's true. We have people from a bunch of different countries, uh, cultures, coming together and forming this new country over the past 200-some years. But the reality is, even in that um, uh, melting pot kind of a culture, there are deep divides among us. We remain a deeply segregated and separated kind of a people. This was brought home to me really clearly from a New York Times article I saw about a month ago. And it was saying that segregation is actually getting worse instead of getting better. And it's looking particularly at economic segregation. You might remember the Occupy Wall Street movement from a few years ago where there's a whole bunch of anger directed against the wealthiest 1% of Americans. And you'd have these rallies where we'd say, we are the 99% and we're all the same. And those one percenters at the top, they're the problem here. They're going living off in their separate little world. But what this article was demonstrating, it's not really just the 1% who are trying to isolate themselves from the big majority. It's actually the top 20% of Americans who are increasingly isolating themselves from the people that aren't exactly like them. And they do this in, in all sorts of different ways, right? They, they, they get the wealthiest neighborhoods that happen to have the best schools and the best services, and they send their kids to the best colleges and universities. They want to only be like with people who are like them in that same upper echelon of the earning bracket. And so they insulate themselves and isolate themselves from the larger community. The higher income people don't want to spend time with lower income people. Now, in, in a small town like Ludington, this is much less pronounced, but that's the reality nationally. The thing is, you don't have to look at the whole uh, country to see that this kind of thing happens, because it happens naturally all over the place. I was in a preschool class once, and I started to see segregation and separatism in a preschool class, particularly among the girls. They had somehow decided, this little group of girls had somehow decided they were the in-group, three or four girls. And I don't know if it was some combination of uh, they thought they were smart or they thought they had better clothes or they thought uh, somehow they decided that they were kind of the in-group. And I watched as they kind of shunned the other girls and they would get first pick at the activities and the toys and they would kind of run like a little mob running their own little show and making sure that the others kind of couldn't get in to their little territory. These are four-year-olds and already at four there's this sense of isolation and separatism. And all too often, the church does the same thing. With, with this, there's this right uh, idea that, that we need to keep ourselves pure, and that, that's true. We, we, we can't you know, just run into sin. Sin is a serious kind of thing. But the problem is we lose sight of what Jesus is doing here. And the natural tendency for a church over time is to get more and more inwardly focused. And of course, we'd never say that we don't care about people who are far from Christ. But what our actions say as we turn more and more inward is that if those people want Jesus, they'll come here. They'll find their way here. And implicitly we're saying, and they'll have to come on our terms. It's no wonder that the statistics of the number of churches, the percentage of churches that are growing is pretty alarming. Recent numbers I saw say as many as 80% of churches in America today are declining. 10% are keeping steady, and only 10% are growing. And it's no wonder, because we've lost sight of Jesus' mission, and we've lost sight of doing it as he did it. We have to shift from separatism to mission. It's a crucial shift for the church. 
There's a second shift that we see here as well. It's a shift from grumbling to joy. Do you see that contrast between how the the good people and heaven respond? Do you see the difference there? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're grumbling, they're complaining. Why is this happening? Jesus is doing the wrong thing. And then you get a picture of heaven, and heaven's throwing a big party, great joy over one single sinner who's repenting. It's from grumbling to joy. See, the Pharisees don't understand what's happening here. They should be overwhelmed with joy at the fact that, that these people that, that they thought were bad people, they're doing bad things, those are coming back to God. They should be so excited they're coming to hear Jesus and they're coming to hear about the kingdom of heaven. They're coming to hear that God loves them. They're coming to hear. This should be great joy in that for them, but they don't get what's happening. They think that this is something messed up. Think about it like this. Let's say that there's a big family sitting down to dinner. We'll take my family. We're not big, but we're getting bigger all the time. So so we sit down for dinner and we've got our kids around the table, but the youngest one's not there. And one of us says, well, where's Clement? Do we just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, okay, well, I don't know. He's not here. And we eat our dinner. A couple days later, where's Clement? I don't know. haven't seen him since dinner. (laughs) Six months, 12 months. I wonder what ever happened to Clement. (laughs) Of course not. He's a part of our family. We would go looking for him. He's a mischievous little boy. He's going to get into trouble. He's going to run away. We've got to go find him. See, that's what's happening here. These are God's people created in his image, loved by him. We've got to go after them. There is such joy when one single person comes back into the family of God's children. That's what this is about. We have to shift from that grumbling, complaining attitude to an attitude of great joy. What we are doing right now as a church is focusing in on this together. We're we're launching today what we're calling One Mission. Over the next six weeks, we're really focusing in on this. And the heart of it is right here, that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one single sinner who repents. And what this calls us to is to engage in this mission as a church, to, to realize that every single one matters to God, that these are our family members, our future brothers and sisters out in our community right now who are lost apart from Jesus. And we're going to do everything we can to go after them. See, this is a call to action. And it starts right here with us seeing God's heart, that God loves his people so much with an unbreaking, unstopping love. He loves us. So we see God's heart, and then we realize that we are called to engage in this mission. There are 28,000 people in Mason County. And to the best of my understanding, the number of Christians in our county has not changed dramatically in 20 years. 20 years, 60-some churches in our community, and the number of Christians has not uh, significantly changed in 20 years. What we are starting today in this one mission is us as a church coming together to say that is not okay with us. These people that are in our community that are right now living apart from God, these are people that we care about. They are neighbors, our classmates, our coworkers, our friends. We care about them and we're going to do everything we can to reach them with the good news of Jesus. All in, no matter what it takes, whatever it takes. And it starts right here. It starts with understanding God's heart. Each one matters to him. So we reject indifference, we reject separatism, we reject complaining, and we decide to engage this mission. Jesus has called his church to make disciples, and that's what we're going to do. 
That's what this one mission is all about. And the idea is grounded right here in Luke 15. Each one matters to God. The reality is that you have people in your life that you know that are right now living outside of Christ. I have people in my life that I know that are right now living outside of Christ. In the past year, we've talked a lot about our one, the person that God has put on your heart, has put on my heart, who right now is outside of Christ. And we've been intentional about praying for those people. For the next six weeks, we're going to be intentional about challenging each other to reach out to our one, to do everything we can to do that. We're going to talk about what it means to live on mission right here in our community, right now in our time. And as we do that, we're going to come together as a church to commit to being ready to welcome our ones into our community to tell them about Jesus. Now, we can be honest and admit that we have a lot of work to do to get there. We're a very imperfect community. We're always going to be a very imperfect community. But we are going to go all in for this. We are going to work hard to reach those who are outside of Christ. God has put a desire on our hearts to make a difference by helping people gain a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And we're going to do everything possible toward that end. We've experienced really encouraging growth over the past year. We're starting to hear some really great stories of what God is doing. And that's fueling our desire to keep reaching out. And it's fueling our desire to be more and more intentional about what we do. And so we're looking at our ministries. We're looking at our facility. We realize that we have some work to do here. We're going to be doing some, some key building renovations over the coming couple of years here. We've got a good facility and a good location. We want to make it a place where people want to come and where they'll hear about Jesus and engage the gospel. Over the next six weeks, we're going to be getting ready for that. We'll have a series of dessert nights that are actually starting uh, this week. Uh, Sandy mentioned those earlier in the service. It'll give you a chance to hear the vision behind One Mission, get a chance to uh, gather with others, to ask questions, and to pray together uh, for this. And then we'll also have in the middle of June, Wednesday, June 22nd, a great event. To, it's a prayer and worship night. It's a great opportunity for us to come together as a church to pray that God would use us for his glory right here in our own community. And then at the end of June, June 26th, the last Sunday of June, we're going to have a special part of our worship service to be able to come together and make our commitments to be part of this one mission, both in prayer and financially. But don't forget that there is great joy within this. I think sometimes we talk about evangelism, we talk about reaching out, and, and we can get this idea that it's, it's some lame task that we kind of have to take up begrudgingly. Like, okay, well, I guess someone has to do it, or I guess Jesus did call us to do that, so I guess we need to obey him, and, and, and we should probably try to reach out to our... But no, that's not what this is about. Remember, this is like the joy of, of a shepherd going and finding that one lost sheep. It's like the joy of a woman going and finding that one coin. It's like the joy of welcoming a, a new baby into the home. I mean, we're a pretty reserved church, and I realize that that probably reflects me more than it reflects you even, but this is something that's worth jumping up out of and knocking the chairs over about. There is great joy here in one single person coming to trust Jesus. One of my favorite things that we do as a church is our baptism service every summer. This is a, baptism is a, is a public proclamation of, of belonging to Christ. And we get to, to dunk someone in the water, and it, like it's, they're, they're identified with Christ, dying with him and, and rising with Christ. And as we pull them out of the water down at Crystal Lake, the whole church erupts in, in applause and clapping hands. They're just rejoicing over this, this person that has come to trust Jesus. This is an amazing thing. We want to see that happen again and again and again. The church I was talking to, a free church down in Big Rapids, they're they starting to celebrate this every single month. They're celebrating baptism service. I mean, that's a great picture of what is the possibility. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And I picture my one, I picture your one coming to proclaim that they belong to Christ and being identified with him in the waters of baptism. The great joy that we get to experience as a church and welcoming this new family member. Now there's a lot coming up here. There's a lot going on. But here's what I want to challenge you to do this week. I want you to think about who is your one. Who is your one person that God has put on your heart that he is calling you to be intentional about praying for and reaching out to over this coming season? Who is your one? Now, I realize that if you're not yet a follower of Jesus or, or you're not sure where you stand with God right now, this can be a little bit of an awkward kind of a thing. I want to give you a different challenge, though. I want you to look at Luke 15 again, the stories that we just heard. Luke 15.10, Luke 15.7. And think about what does this mean for God's attitude toward you? Maybe you think that God is angry with you. Or maybe you think that God is indifferent toward you. He just doesn't care. Or maybe you think that God is out to get you. He's trying to punish you for something. Well, you look at this passage and you realize that's not how God looks at you. God loves you. He cares about you. And he'll do everything to bring you back to himself, safe and sound. And now he's sending his church out to point you to Jesus. Here's the message. Each one matters to God. So we as a church are called to go out of our building, out of our walls with the good news of Jesus so that more and more people would come to find life in him. Our God, the God that we worship, is alive and active. He's going after his people who have run far away from him. He loves them. He cares about each and every single one. And we as a church get to be part of that. Church, we get to join with the joy of heaven. We get to be part of God's great work. Your one, that person that you care about, your one matters to God. And we look forward with great anticipation to being able to throw a party when they come to experience life in Christ for the first time. That's what we're working for here. Please join me in prayer. God, I thank you for showing your heart to us through your son Jesus. That he, being in very nature God, would humble himself to come down to rescue us, even though he knew he would be rejected, even though he knew he would suffer, even though he knew he would be killed. What a picture of your unrelenting love for your people. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts with that message and that you would move us to action in line with your heart right here in our community. We pray for those who don't yet know you. God, would you make us a church who points them to Jesus, who welcomes them no matter what, so that we'd be able to see and rejoice in more and more life in Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.